Welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. I really appreciate you listening and would like you to know about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to Dakota Spotlight that provides bonus content, early access, and ad-free listening, all while supporting my work and the show you love. You can subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app or visit dakotaspotlight.com. You're listening to Dakota Spotlight. My name is James Walner. This is episode six of season eight, Unresolved, the murder of Joel Loveling. If you've not listened to episodes one through five, you'll want to do that first. In this episode, a closer look at the trial of the man in yellow, Travis Stay, the University of North Dakota nursing student who was arrested six weeks after Joel's death. His trial took place a year later in December of 2008. The jury found him not guilty. We will hear again from Nancy Yon, who prosecuted the case for the state, but also from Archie Ingersoll. Archie is currently the news editor of the Forum of Fargo-Moorhead, Fargo's daily newspaper. But in 2008, he was a reporter at the Grand Forks Herald, and he covered the Travis Stay trial, a trial he recalls as unique in Grand Forks at the time, with a bit of a circus aspect to it. And when I say he covered the trial, I mean he was right in there, in the county courthouse, inside a packed courtroom. You may be wondering if we'll hear from Travis Stay himself. Well, I hope so. Many weeks ago, I sent interview requests to Travis and one of his defense attorneys, Peter Wold. That offer still stands, and while Travis and his attorney are absent from this episode, the door is always open. In fact, I spoke to Peter Wold again yesterday, and he's going to have a listen to the podcast and possibly get back to me if either of them want to grant an interview or share their thoughts, memories, or insight into the trial. That is their decision to make, and as I said, the door is always open. Now let's dive into the Travis Stay trial. Archie Ingersoll. The Travis Stay trial was one that consumed the city of Grand Forks. Everyone had an opinion. Everyone was talking about it. There was an energy around it, unlike any case I had ever covered, unlike any case I've covered since. And there was a certain bizarreness to the case created by the Halloween atmosphere that night. One thing that made an impression on Archie was the remarkable presence of support that both sides had inside the courtroom. You know, Loveling's friends and family filled the pews of the courtroom. And so did Stay's friends and family. People came together. People rallied behind both of these families and took time out of their lives to, to be at this trial that, that lasted several days. The, the circus aspect was, you know, a lot of curious onlookers would come every day and, uh, and sit in the gallery. And also many classes, high school, middle school kids were being brought there on field trips to witness this once-in-a-lifetime trial. So when we say a packed courtroom, it was, uh, you know, standing room only some days. Travis Stay had hired two very seasoned attorneys from the Minneapolis, Minnesota area, Peter Wold and Joe Friedberg. And they complemented each other in different ways. Peter Wold was very hard-charging, and he was often used as the guy who would question uh, police officials. And he would not hold back in going after a detective. And I think it, it was a little startling probably for the Grand Forks 
people in the, in the courtroom maybe not having seen a lawyer quite you know, gloves off with a with a police detective you know some you know from a pro police community he he was he was going hard there was a moment i remember once where he was really doing a difficult line of questioning with a detective and was getting getting fired up but took a break at one point to say you know this isn't personal right and and the and the detective understood and and then he carried on with with that you know hard line of questioning the other defense attorney Joe Friedberg, he was even more of a character, I'd say. You know, I, I, he would wear a fur coat. I saw him getting coffee once in this uh, really poofy fur coat, and uh, he would wear leather loafers and um, looked a little like Mel Brooks, but he really, his courtroom presence uh, was captivating. And of course, the defendant, Travis Stay, he was there too. So Travis Day throughout the trial was, you know, dressed uh, in a suit, I recall, and he was um, clean shaven, and he sat with pretty much the same expression on his face the whole time. I never really saw him react to what was being said. I think I, I look back at a story I wrote, and I described his expression as serene. Walking into the courtroom on that first day of the trial, the prosecution, Nancy Yawn and her co-counsel, Meredith Larson, they knew they had a strong case. They had blood evidence connecting Travis physically to Joel Loveling. They had witness accounts of two separate instances that night where an intoxicated Travis Stay attempted to assault people. First, James Wavra and Anna Barrett in the Broken Drum parking lot, and then later, Stephen Rossica, who was walking down a back alley a few blocks away. Of course, there were also some things the prosecution didn't know walking into the courtroom. What would the defense's strategy be? And for that matter, would Travis Stay take the stand? And what would the jury make of Travis's lack of memory? They also knew they had some tough obstacles ahead. Travis was much smaller than Joel Loveling, which they knew might be contested. How could Travis take down the much taller and bigger Joel Loveling? But also, just in general, Travis was what one would call a sympathetic defendant. I don't have a specific memory of this coming up at trial, but Stay had been studying nursing at UND. And I don't know if jurors were informed of that, but I think the public knew that. And uh, there was this idea that maybe he was helping Lovelane after he'd been attacked. Here is Nancy Yon again, lead prosecutor at the trial. I can understand why the jury would have struggled with, with um, Travis because he came into law enforcement himself. He voluntarily gave two statements to them. He voluntarily gave up evidence. He's a, a young guy and size differential with the, with the victim, and he's a nursing student. So we knew going in, we, we have a sympathetic defendant. Another obstacle was the fact that there were no known witnesses to the assault on Joel and no video surveillance from the parking lot. That was one thing that we weren't able to give the jurors, and we discussed that during jury selection. You know, we're going to be up front. We can't, tell, we can't give you um, video surveillance, and we can't present a witness that's going to tell you that they saw what happened. So that was a weakness in our case, but completely, obviously, out of our our control. And that's what the defense would point out, that no one actually saw the beating of Joe Loveling. 
They also knew that Travis Stay was not going to help them reconstruct those important minutes because Travis stated he had no memory of any assault with Joel or of ever having met Joel Loveling. He said that, uh, I think he told investigators that he estimated uh, that he drank about 10 drinks that night and that he didn't have any memory. He didn't. He told investigators he remembered getting punched with a broken drum, but uh, nothing until he got into a taxi later that night. I mean, everybody has their own um, subjective opinion as to how intoxicated somebody might be. Some people, um, including Travis, said he was so intoxicated that he didn't remember what happened. Other people said he was walking, he got up after the fight, he was able to walk from the broken drum all the way to where he got his cab and was um, walking well enough to try to assault another individual in the back alley. So I think there was this general question of... Uh, you know, how can he be so sure he's innocent if he doesn't remember what happened? That was uh, a question that I heard people asking. Because as everyone knows, there are, there are wonderful people who, who get intoxicated and do terrible things. Uh, that happens uh, now and then. So, Because he and his family and his friends all insisted that he was an excellent guy and would never do something like this. And I think he, he held that personal belief all the way through. The defense's approach became clear at the opening statements. Both sides had their theories about what happened. Uh, prosecutors argued that Stay was the, the lone uh, killer. Defense attorneys, they argued it wasn't Stay, that it was actually a group of guys who were on a party bus with Stay. Archie recalls an early moment of the trial when Stay's attorney, Joe Friedberg, questioned his first witness, a friend of Joel Loveling's who had been sitting at that round table near the back door with Joel, Heather, and others. She was there when Joel returned to the table for a few seconds, then said something about going back outside to help someone who'd been left behind on a bus. That first day, a lot of the testimony, a lot of the questioning was around the timeline of events at the Broken Drum particularly the, uh, the question of when the party bus uh, left the broken drum, and specifically whether the bus left before or after Loveling was killed. And he was talking to this uh, friend of Loveling's, her, I believe her name was Randy Whipler, and he was trying to get her sense of when Loveling got up and stepped out of the bar uh, to go outside and he wasn't really getting the answers that he wanted from her. He wasn't getting a clear sense because it was, it was several months ago. It was a night out. She didn't have, you know, to the minute times in her memory. So he took a, a few steps away from her and he, and right in front of the, the, um, the jurors, he spun on one foot and with his arm outstretched and he brought it all the way around the 360 spin and ended up pointing right at, right at her, right at Randy. And he said to her, do you understand why this is important? And what he was doing, he was using her to make the point. You know, there was no clear idea of when that bus left. And so he was opening the door for the possibility that uh, other guys on the bus could have been responsible for Loveling's killing. He was right away starting to establish that alternative version of events, right away trying to open the door to doubt. 
Apparently, this move made an impression on everyone in the courtroom, even the judge. Judge Joel Med, uh, he just sort of, like, did this real long squint and stare at Friedberg. It, it was it was a very memorable moment of the trial, and it set the tone. It, it I think it, it just, from there, they built their case. Hello, dear listener. This is James, host of Dakota Spotlight, inviting you to subscribe to Spotlight Plus. For as little as $5 per month, you will get the warm feeling of supporting the show and also unlock access to bonus episodes. Get the episodes early and listen ad-free. That's right, no more ads. Apple users can subscribe to Spotlight Plus Standard right in the Apple Podcasts app. If you want to dive deeper and get even more exclusive benefits, subscribe to Spotlight Plus Premium or Spotlight Plus Ultimate. Go to dakotaspotlight.com for more details. Archie recalls that Nancy Yawn and her prosecution team started out strong. Prosecutors, they had a lot of momentum um, in the early days of the trial. It, I mean, they had some good days, some good witnesses early on. It felt like they were on course to, you know, potentially win the case. I mean, it wasn't, wasn't always clear that the defense was going to win. Because even though they had to address those obstacles ahead of them, a smaller, sympathetic nursing student with no memory of an altercation with Joel, they did have something incredibly important. Joel Loveling's blood on Travis' clothing. And that was one of the key pieces of evidence that prosecutors pointed to again and again, was that uh, he had the victim's blood on his clothes. And the blood spatter expert found that the blood evidence was consistent with stay straddling Loveling. Here is Nancy Yon again. Terry Labor, um, the blood spatter expert, did opine that, um, in his opinion, the uh, victim, Joel Loveling, was laying down for likely most of the time that he was assaulted due to the way that the blood um, was found on the scene as well as on clothing, and that the individual that was wearing the clothing that he analyzed... Um, was likely straddling in close proximity to Joel Loveline um, due to the impact spatter and the contact blood on that individual's clothing. So the middle of the yellow sweatshirt, the sleeve of the sweatshirt, the costume piece. So the sweatshirt had the impact spatter, which is when you hit someone and you're hitting their blood and their blood is, is spattering back onto you. And then the contact, so that costume piece in the garbage was contact blood, and it was Joel Loveling's blood on it, which showed that that piece came and, le- and rested in Joel's blood. The defense would point out again and again that this evidence was circumstantial. Yes, Travis came into contact with a bleeding Joel Loveling, but nobody knew how nor why. Throughout the whole trial, the jurors were constantly presented with these two potential scenarios. Was he helping or hurting? Was he trying to perform some sort of resuscitation? Or was he beating him? The defense really didn't get into like details, like a person that was seen potentially in the parking lot. They really focused on this other group of guys that were on the bus, the East Grand Forks guys. 
Um, so Bryce Larson and um, and his and his friends, yeah, John and and Mitch, and and um, really portrayed that they believed that Joel Loveling was murdered by a mob or a group of angry guys in costumes, and we you know, talked and had our witnesses testify about whether that was a possibility. And um, I guess it could be if you decided you wanted to ignore the physical evidence. So we just tried to look at what was consistent and, and, and keep pointing back to the physical evidence, the, um, the blood evidence. One thing in the case that came up again and again was this idea that police and prosecutors rush to judgment. They jump to conclusions. Um, I talked with Jan, Prosecutor Nancy Jan, after the case, after the trial, and uh, you know, she, she rejected that idea. You know, she said there's a lot of investigation, a lot of following leads, and um, you know, they, they did it to the best of their ability. Um, but that was the premise of the defense's alternative version of events, that there was this other group of guys who weren't investigated thoroughly enough. One, one key piece of evidence the prosecutors pointed to a lot was that they found, the police found no blood on the party bus. And so the blood evidence is present on Stay's clothes, but none of the blood, none of Loveling's blood was found on the party bus. And they argued that you would suspect to have found at least a drop if you had a group of guys who um, took part in such a, a brutal beating and then got on a party bus and left. Again, Stay did not leave on the party bus. He um, ended up getting a taxi home. The prosecution did ask their pathologist, Dr. Mary Ann Sens, if Joel's injuries looked to be inflicted by one person or perhaps several persons. And she um, indicated that had it been a group of people, um, she would have likely, in her opinion, have observed more injuries to Joel's body because there would have been individuals kicking, punching, not just right in, in his face and, and head area. So she didn't feel that that was the case, but obviously not having been there to see what happened, you can't rule out anything. But with her experience and, and many years of experience, um, many autopsies conducted and having conducted autopsies on individuals that had been attacked by a group of people, that's not what she saw with Joel Loveling. When the prosecution addressed the size difference between the much smaller Travis Day and the six foot four Joel Loveling, described as a gentle giant by friends, they again referred to findings made by their pathologist, Dr. Sens. Our pathologist, we did ask her, um, you know, she provided an opinion that uh, Joel Loveling's injuries were primarily to his face and his head. Um, he did have an injury to his clavicle, his left clavicle, which was, I believe, the lowest injury other than potentially an injury to his groin area. Um, and so there was potential theory because we knew that the size differential, um, we, ne we needed to be able to address that and how would Travis have been able to get Joel Loveling down on the ground. Um, Joel was a wonderful person. Um, he was not a fighter. In fact, everyone would say that he would have helped anyone, and he went out there to help Travis because he'd been left in the parking lot and wasn't able to get back on the bus. And so had he been pushed by Mr. Stay or 
knee in the groin or shoved into the clavicle and fallen back. That's, that's what our theory was. And what about those injuries to Travis Stay's hands? Dr. Sens, um, the pathologist that testified and did the autopsy, also indicated that the injuries to Joel's face were consistent with punching, with having been punched by someone. Um, the defense wanted to portray that Travis's injuries to his hands would have been so much more significant had he punched Joel to death. Um, Dr. Sens said no. The, the injuries to his hands are consistent with the injuries to Joel Loveling's um, face and head. The defense, on the other hand, presented an expert witness of their own who disagreed and contradicted these findings. He said the injuries to Travis' hands were inconsistent with such a beating. There were, of course, other witnesses who testified at the trial. Remember Stephen Rossica? He was walking home from his friend's house that night down a dark alley near a cemetery when a deranged man in yellow followed him and took a wild swing at him. The man in yellow missed and fell to the ground, seemingly very intoxicated. Too intoxicated, the defense would argue, to have beaten up Joel Loveling earlier. And then there was Paul Ballstad, the taxi driver that picked up Travis that night. The defense only had one question for him at the trial— did you see a fight between Travis Day and Joel Loveling? Here is Mr. Ballstad from my interview with him. What's kind of funny is that the prosecutors thought I was like the key to linking Stay to this incident. The defense basically asked me one question. Did you see any of this happen? Or did you see the confrontation? I said, not a thing. The only thing I can say is that he was in my cab. He flipped on the visor, took a quick peek, wasn't too thrilled with what he saw, flipped it back up, and signed for the uh, credit card, and away he went. The cowboy, the clown, and others also testified at the trial. The prosecution focused on the witness statements they made when they said that they saw the man in yellow talking to the man in green as they left the broken drum on the bus. The defense, on the other hand, focused on the behavior of the clown and the cowboy and others when they'd been questioned by police later that night while they were intoxicated. The cowboy lied to the cops about his name and had been very angry. The clown was emotional and sad. He had apparently said at one point, I guess things got out of hand tonight. I think, for me, one of the key witnesses who took the stand was a blood spatter expert, and his name was Terry Labor. Now, he was an expert called by the prosecution. He worked for the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension, and he was recruited to analyze the blood spatter, uh, the stains on Loveling's, the stains of Loveling's blood that were found on the yellow hooded sweatshirt and cargo pants worn by Stay that night. And I just remember this moment. He was asked a question by the defense. He was asked whether or not he could say that the spatter that ended up on Travis Stay was a, the result of coughing, like leveling aspirating the blood, or whether it had gotten onto Stay because Stay was striking lovely and and spattering back on to stay and he said no he couldn't rule out that there could have been some uh 
what he said, expiration of blood from Loveline on a stay. I've got the quote here. He said, I didn't find convincing evidence that there was an expiration, but I still couldn't rule out that there could have been some. And and that came after, uh, you know, he acknowledged this possibility. He, he acknowledged that, he, that, that this possibility was overlooked in the first report he did for prosecutor. Then after reading the findings of the defense's blood spatter expert, he changed his conclusions to include the possibility that Lovely could have expirated blood. That was the foot in the door to doubt. It, and it just, it changed the whole momentum of the case. The whole trial's momentum shifted on that question, at least for me. Here is Nancy Yon again. He did have to say it's possible that he sneezed, but that doesn't account for all of the blood that was there. Um, I think it was sneezing, coughing. I'm not sure what he, what he um, indicated. But when we went back and, and redirected, Joel died of asphyxiation. He died choking on his own blood. So while he may have coughed up some of his own blood, he died because he couldn't get the blood out. And our blood spatter expert also said that had he coughed or sneezed the blood, it would have looked different because it would have looked like a bubble um, like you would find with the cough or, or the sneeze. And also, Joel still had gum in his mouth when he was dead and didn't cough that out. And so all of that was presented to the jury as well. You know, I can't speak to what the jury thought, but right when they had this uh, prosecution expert, mind you, prosecution's expert is, is kind of starts to support the defense's theory, uh, things started to unravel for the prosecution. After 14 days, it was time for both sides to make their closing arguments. The prosecution stuck to their physical evidence, the blood evidence, and they reminded the jury that law enforcement had indeed spoken with and investigated other individuals, the clown, the cowboy, the hunter. Here is a short soundbite. This is Nancy Yong during her closing statements. They don't want you to think about the fact that he had the victim's blood all over him and no one else did. They don't want you to think about the fact that he had injuries to his hand consistent with striking someone and no one else did. There was something else Nancy Yon and the prosecution pointed out to the jurors, something they hoped the jury would take some time to consider and think about. Several of the other party bus passengers, including the cowboy, when interviewed by police, they stated that when they left on the bus, the man in green was talking to the man in yellow. And they suggested that the police go find the man in yellow and talk to him as he might know more. Here is Nancy Yon again argument that we made to the jury in closing argument was if it was this group from East Grand Forks that were responsible for beating Joel Loveling to death in front of Travis Stay, because Travis can't deny that he had Joel Loveling's blood all over him. So he was there one way or another. So if it was this group that uh, was responsible for Joel Loveling's death as the defense wanted to portray, why would they tell law enforcement, you should go and talk to the guy in yellow, he might know more about this? putting themselves as potential, like why would they point the finger at the guy in yellow knowing that they were there with him and Joel Loveling if they really were involved in that murder? One thing I remember from the closing arguments given by Joe Friedberg uh, was this point he made about the 
Scottish justice system. I believe he described the Scottish justice system as having uh, three types of verdicts you could have. You've got not guilty, guilty, and innocent. I looked it up. I, I just double-checked it. It looks like not proven is actually what they called innocent. But if I recall correctly, Friedberg used the, phrase, used the, word, not, used the word innocent. So guilty, not guilty, innocent. And what he was telling jurors was that you don't necessarily have to find Travis State innocent, but there is enough doubt that he's not guilty, that the prosecution hasn't sufficiently proven its case. He was, he was trying to get the jurors to be thinking more like a judge who's looking at the legal aspects of the case rather than uh, maybe an average person who would come at it with more emotion. He wanted them to be dispassionate and, and look at the, the facts as presented. So it, uh, it may have helped. Here is a short soundbite from Joe Friedberg's closing arguments. You can actually hear his finger striking the podium as he hammers home his points for the jury. That if there is a rational theory of innocence, you cannot convict somebody on circumstantial evidence, and all parties agree this is a circumstantial evidence. It only took the jury six hours to deliberate. Pretty late into the evening, I forget, I forget the exact time, but I remember it was dark out when they read the verdict, and I, I chose to sit along the aisle so that I wouldn't get uh, penned in if I needed to jump up and um, go interview someone. And it, it was an eruption on, on Stay's side. They, they just erupted with joy and celebration. The jury duly impaneled and sworn in the above entitled action. Do find the defendant, Travis Robert State, not guilty of the crime of murder as charged in the information. They're not guilty of the crime of murder. <laughs> I, I, I indicated that. The Grand Forks County Courthouse is a lovely old building with a grand stairway that takes you down through the floors, and people just pour down that and outside. And I remember having to run down those steps to catch up with people and interview them. And uh, I was trying to get stay that night, get him to talk for the paper, and he, uh, he said, no, I'll talk to you tomorrow morning. A WDAZ television reporter did get a quick word with Travis Stay's defense attorney, Peter Wold. Always scary, particularly when you're representing an innocent man. It's, uh, the stakes were high, and um, we're relieved. I think, I think the police took it pretty hard. I think the prosecution took it pretty hard, you know, given all the time and effort that went into the investigation. Yeah, I can't imagine. It, it was a difficult case. We never went into this as a slam dunk case. During trial, we worked probably 18-plus-hour days, and so it was very intense, and coming out of it with a, a not guilty verdict was crushing. I mean, felt terrible for the family. And, um, you know, so you can't help but think, what could I have done differently? What could the state have done differently? What could we have done that might have, you know, ended it differently, um, brought justice to Joel and his family? The next morning, Archie went to the hotel where Travis and his defense team were staying and sat down with Travis Stay for an interview. 
He asked Travis Day how he got through the trial without showing any emotion. And he basically said that's just what he had to do. And he told me, quote, your lawyers tell you you can't show any emotion. Yeah, he said uh, that's what you have to look like. On the inside, it's tough. It's rough. I don't know Travis very well. You know, I only observed him during the trial and I interviewed him once. My impression of him is that he was a pretty even keel kind of guy. Like I used the word serene to describe him during the trial. He, he, seemed, very, he seemed fairly serene and, and definitely relaxed the next morning that he'd, you know, this is a 24-year-old kid who'd been accused of murder and he'd been acquitted. So this is a, a huge roller coaster that he's been on um, and he was getting off that ride. A few days after the trial, a different reporter from the Grand Forks Herald, Ryan Bakken, interviewed one of the jurors. In the article, the jurors referred to as juror number 11. According to juror number 11, the jury just didn't think Travis did it. It wasn't just that the defense had raised reasonable doubt. The jury felt Travis was innocent. I just remember being struck by how much that juror felt that Stay was innocent. A quote from juror number 11 reads like this, quote, Based on our conversations when we went over the evidence, 11 of the 12 jurors didn't think he did it, unquote. Juror number 11 also said that one important point in the trial was when the prosecution's blood spatter expert had to acknowledge he couldn't rule out that the blood on the yellow sweatshirt may have been due to coughing or sneezing. He was speaking for the other jurors, so you may sort of have to assume that he's characterizing it accurately. As a jury, he was saying that they felt that Stay was innocent and that uh, you know, they accepted the defense's version of events. So in 2011, I did a cold case roundup story for the Grand Forks Herald, and the Travis Stay case notably was not on the Grand Forks Police Department's cold case list at that time. And I asked uh, the head detective, Lieutenant Ron Farter, I asked, you know, what about, what about this case? And he said, the quote was, if some new information would come in on that, we would certainly follow up as much as we could. Somewhat of a standard issue statement. Um, basically, I, th I think they're saying, you know, we don't have new information and uh, we're, not, we're not following anything on that. They tried the guy who they thought was guilty and um, they lost the case. Every new credible tip that comes in is investigated. So many have centered their understanding of this case on speculation and rumors is beyond frustrating. In the next episode of Unresolved, the murder of Joel Loveling, we'll speak with the Grand Forks police detective about the current status of Joel's case. And also, a word with someone who was on that party bus. And not just anyone, it's Heather Holter. You may recall, she wasn't just a friend of the cowboy, she was the clown's girlfriend. They argued that night, she lost her jacket, her boyfriend was detained about a murder, he got emotional. He said, I guess things got out of hand tonight. In fact, the couple married in 2014 and later divorced. 
Heather talks about that party night, about life after the trial, the persistent echoes of Dateline NBC, and even some anonymous harassment that has followed them ever since. We get tips every so often, every three to four months, typically after like an episode of the Dateline series. That left all everyone with so many questions and left facts out of everything. A lot of third, fourth, fifth-hand information. Every Halloween that it gets aired again, or I get phone calls, texts, social media messages, it's super frustrating. And by the time it gets back to the person that should have the first-hand information, it, the information's proven to be unconfirmed or unsubstantiated. And they also wanted the items for fingerprints. And so while we were in the police station, I remember looking at John and I said, what a great honeymoon. (laughs) Dakota Spotlight is a production of Forum Communications, researched, written, and produced by me, James Walner. I also do the sound editing. Our podcast network manager is Chris Kurzman. Madison Hunter, our social media specialist, and Jeremy Fugelberg, our editorial advisor. Don't miss the awesome Dakota Spotlight Facebook group. To join, go to facebook.com slash groups slash Dakota Spotlight. Finally, some music this season was generously granted again by Wowza in Kalamazoo and Hand Turner. Check them out at wowzainkalamazoo.bandcamp.com and handturner.bandcamp.com. Once again, thank you so much for listening to Dakota Spotlight. I'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening. To support my work, get early access, listen ad-free, and much more, please consider subscribing to Spotlight Plus. Apple users can even subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app. Learn more about Spotlight Plus at dakotaspotlight.com.